forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. This is it. Welcome to a podcast for the first time, all of you. And this is your first podcast. Very first Very podcast virgins. Uh, what I'm Second. going to Second do. Second for Ian. Oh. Ian's not a virgin. Not well. Born again. There you go. Uh, what I'm going to do is go around the table and ask you to introduce yourselves on the microphones so the listener knows what your voice sounds like. Tell us uh, a couple of places where they may have seen your name on the television. And Megan, let's start with you. Um, I My name is Megan Martin. I... Uh, I'm very proud and excitedly running my first show right now. I just finished my first week of oh my gosh. Oh, wow. a room I'm incredibly oh proud of. An amazing Congrats. group of writers. Yeah, it's it's a wildly fun um, group of people. And, and what is the show? The show is a as yet untitled Brie Larson spy thriller for Apple. Ooh. And uh, I have a title I would like to 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 do, but I, I'm not allowed to say it until it's approved. But we, all the writers are sort of saying it, so hopefully we will. It'll be approved by our wonderful producing partners, studio and buyer. Um, is it FBI? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Oh, that's not, oh, I've got a competitor uh, title. Feel free to um, submit. So, so um, I, I, I just you know completed putting together my first room, which was fascinating, and I got really involved with the deals because my studio and I have a very good relationship, which was also really. Good. I want to get into some of that. Um, sure. Previous to that, uh, you previous to that, on a I just shows. came off of yes. Uh, previous to that, I had sold my own show to Netflix that didn't go, and then that same show I sold other places and it also didn't go including <laughs> one of the places that we cast for a full year a casting team was working for a full year on it oh my god a director was hired pay or play and got paid it was an insanely expensive never went to camera that was the second time i sold it and then during that all that time i was on animal kingdom which was a show i had huge love for and worked with john wells really closely awesome. on that and and jonathan lisco and 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 yeah. it, quite honestly an amazing team of writers in general on that mm -hmm. too and actors which was great that's yeah. great. Uh, that's a lot to unpack. We're going to get to. Great. Yeah. Diana. Hi, I'm Diana Demujan, and you've last seen my name on TV for Empire. I was on that for three seasons, and before that, I was on a show called The Originals, which was a spinoff of The Vampire Diaries, which I absolutely loved. I was on that for three seasons. And you've also seen my name on Medium for five seasons, and um, before that, 1-800-MISSING, and before that, Crossing Jordan. Mm -hmm. And where are you, you now? Are you allowed and to talk about it? Currently, I am on um, season two of The Haunting of Hill House, and season two is called The Haunting of Bly Manor. So excited. Very excited. Ooh, excited. So cool. Great. Ian. Uh, I'm Ian Deitchman. I, um, I work with a writing partner, Kristen Robinson. Um, uh, and we, right now, we're on Almost Family, mm -hmm. which is um, for. Uh, Fox with Jason Kadams and Annie Weissman. And we've worked with Jason previously on Rise and on Parenthood. Uh, last year we were on Suits. We've we've been on a lot of different genres yeah. of show, which has been really cool. Like we were on the first season of Carnival Row. We were on Z, the beginning of everything, which was an amazing experience. And uh, yeah. And then we, and we came from features before that. Mm -hmm. So our, the, the one feature, the lone feature that only <laughs> mm -hmm. took 10 years to get made was life as we know it. With, wow. um, that great Berlanti directed. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. But it took cool. 10 years to get made. 
Yeah, features. Features. <laughs> features. Wow. wow. Um, I want to sort of start us off by talking about the stuff you are working on right now. Sort of the most the most current uh, situation you find yourself in. Um, and I want to start with Ian and Diane and talk about, you know, coming to a new room. Um, you're coming to a brand new show, Ian, mm-hmm. uh, but it is with Kadams, with whom you've worked yeah. before. Um and Diane, you're coming to uh, what is essentially a new show. Um, I don't know how many of the writers stayed on from the first season. Uh, one writer from oh, really? the first season okay. and the show creator um, as well. So, um, so two people can you from season one. Tell us a little bit about how you wound up there, what the process of just like getting on a show was like for you. Well, the process of me getting on to season two of Hill House was 15 years in the making because wow. uh, I had submitted a pilot, uh, like a spec pilot to um, the producer of, currently he's a producer of Hill House, but back then he was a producer of other things. Mm-hmm. And um, he'd liked that pilot and he wanted to kind of turn it into a feature because this production house called Intrepid was doing features mm-hmm. at the time. And it was 15 years ago when 15 years features ago, were much bigger than TV. When I was six TV. years old. <laughs> right. <Yes. laughs> um, and uh, we liked each other when we worked on get, turning that, that pilot TV pilot script into a film. And we worked on it for maybe two or three years, actually. And then I was just like, well, I'm, I can't really <laughs> keep working on this. Right. I got another job. But he and I kept in touch and cut to 15 years later when his, um, he's now a producing partner with Mike Flanagan, who is the showrunner of Hill mm-hmm. House and also a feature director. And um, he's like, you know. I think Diane would be good for (laughs) that person that I knew from 15 years (laughs) ago um, would be a good person to help run the room. So what was, um, and I apologize, I'm going to interrupt all of you a lot because I want to sort of dig in on certain details, but what was the, um, what kind of a script was that? That you initially gave to this producer that horror. got him excited. It was horror. horror. Yeah. And your career sort of to the, took this left turn into horror yes. adjacent things. Well, I've had like some genre adjacent yeah. shows. I mean, certainly Medium mm-hmm. was a genre show and the originals was about, a, you know, vampires in New Orleans who fought witches and werewolves. Right. So that was genre. That's straight up, yeah. Um, but mostly I've done shows about psychics who solve crimes <laughs> or um, medical examiners who right. solve crimes. <laughs> so, Those are the best and guys. a hip-hop family who right. kills people in And you've music. also worked in network pretty much solely, the right? The entire until time this. until now. Uh, so how is that yeah. different for you? Or is it? It's a new world. Like, yeah. it's a new... It's the pacing is different, you know, going from a train that's got to churn out 22 episodes uh even one season, I turned out 25 episodes of a show. Yeah. Wow. Uh, to, That's you know, We got to episode eight and, you know, <laughs> oh, we're done. Okay, great. Right. It was, it's it's, it's uh, truncated, but it's lovely. And so I really don't know what this new world is like to just be done with the writing of it before the show's even cast, before even thinking about when it's going to air. Like, it's just a, a, um, a new yeah, that's for me. so interesting. And are so, you co-show running? Did I hear that correctly? Yes. Um, is this your first show running gig? It's my first co-show running gig, and I feel like um, there are a lot of co-show runners, so there's probably like uh-huh. five of us who are <laughs> sharing that title right yeah. now. But, which which um, I heard I've been it was an EP on, the first on three, mm-hmm. three shows by now. So. Gotcha. Um, and 
Uh, I'll, I'll wrap up with this because I know you probably can't talk too much about the, the upcoming season, but what was figured out beforehand? You know, like how much well, of it was creating in the room? How much of it was, you know, already in, in his head? Well, um, for season one, like all of it was in his head. He's yeah. probably told the story before, too. He, meaning Mike Flanagan, um, had the entire season kind of beat out and he went and pitched the whole thing. Yeah. And that's what they sold. And pretty much that's what they did. And he did a lot of um, writing, directing, yeah. rewriting. Um, on this season, he had it a lot less worked out, but he knew that uh, last season was based on Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House. This season is based on Henry James's Turn of the Screw. And so uh, he we, we have a basis. Mm -hmm. And he also wanted to work in kind of other Henry James, you know, oh, not yeah. so beloved yeah. ghost stories as well. A Henry James so averse. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> that's great. So uh, we had a lot less to work with that had come out of his mind, but we had a lot more Henry mm -hmm. James material to pull from. That's so. cool. And it seems like it's much more built in the room than it had been yes, previously. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. I can't yeah. wait. Uh, thanks. That's, that's cool. Um, Ian, let's talk about uh, moving to your new show. Sure. Um, again, you had worked with Jason before. Yeah. Um, and he tends to hire a lot of people he likes over the years. Yeah. I mean, we... I mean, the way we got in with him was on Parenthood in its fifth season, and I the joke we make is like we were in features for a solid decade before, and it, you know, like that moment in The Matrix when like the claw comes down and pulls Neo out of like the <laughs> that was basically Jason pulling us out of features. Um, yeah, we wrote, you know, we had, uh, you know, we basically wrote a pilot um, that and met and and you know, through a series of connections or whatever, and also through our agents at Verve, got it to, to Jason and got it read and, and met with him for parenthood. And he was like, it's like you've, cause we, it was kind of like a Hershkovitz Zwick type mm -hmm. um, thing that our agents were like, yeah, this will never sell, but it could be <laughs> as good as a sample. And, and he was like, it's like you wrote a, a, a sample just for this show. <laughs> we're like, <laughs> At the time we're like, that was kind of the plan. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so That's like, crazy. unlike in features where it's like, you know, there's like 14 meetings and then finally <laughs> you maybe get the job. It was like, we met with him once and it was like, okay, all right, hiring. We're like, That's it. We're like, really? <laughs> right. We don't have no that other more meetings. <laughs> um, Let's, can we, uh, I want to back up for a second because yeah. I think this is probably instructive to a lot of listeners. Let's talk about those first meetings from your side of it, where you're the person who wants the job. And again, this was a decade ago, but I, I mean, the meeting with, with Jason, you mean yeah. specifically, or I mean, that meeting, well, that was like one of the dream meetings that mm -hmm. you always like, he was so warm and, and he just really responded to our material, like in a very emotional way, which was, it was phenomenal. Um, you know, we were coming out of, Features, we had a lot of feature experience under our belt. We had a produced film, all of that stuff. And yet features was imploding and it was, it was brutal. Yeah. And so, um, you know, he, I, I remember there was a point where he kept like, do you have any questions? And we were like, we were so happy to be there. <laughs> we're so happy. Like that was the, we said, well, like, this is the one meeting we wanted to have. So we're That's so funny. excited to have it. And he's like, and he kept like, but do you have any questions? And in my head, it was like, ask a question. And <laughs> yeah. so basically we're like, yeah, well, how does the show work? And then he talked a lot about how the show worked. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, I, uh, we said to him, like, do you have any questions for us? And he said, well, you know, it's not typical that we have writers that have 
your, your years of experience or your amount of experience come in at such a low level, mm-hmm. how will that work for you? And our answer was essentially, you know, we are, we feel like we have a lot to contribute and a lot to learn and we're really excited to do both. And that's right. kind of been what has mm-hmm. the, the, the MO for us all along. Like, you it's know, a great attitude to have. We, it is. we, we took a lot of, uh, shots at trying to sell pilots and just, and we had finally said to our agents, like we want to learn TV mm-hmm. and you know, they were like, write a pilot. And we, and that's how that happened. And so we, and then parenthood was just a dream experience yeah. for us. We just clicked with Jason and David Hudgens and Sarah Watson, who we've also worked with subsequently mm-hmm. to that. And, you know, so it's just been this every time we get to go back to True Jack and get to work yeah. with Jason on Rise and now an almost family. It's just a dream. And 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 Annie is what's interesting is Jason has this group of writers, this the kind of stable of writers that work on different shows. And so on that first season of Parenthood for Us, season five, there's a bunch of new writers. So yeah. it was like um Julia Brownell and Jessica Goldberg and um uh, Jennifer Torre. And so, uh, you know, it's and so group, yeah. it was an amazing room. And, um, and a lot of, and then Jessica went on to keep working with Jason on the path and, you know, and Annie was, Annie Weissman kind of came in. Annie was somebody that we were always passing in like the kitchen. Cause like she was on about a boy, we were on oh, parenthood. And so we can, and she was fr- really close with, um, with Jessica and then they were on the path together while we were on rise. So it, it, it felt very natural once mm-hmm. we read the script of almost family and well, at the time it was called sisters um, and just loved it. Um, it has such a, such a unique tone and it's so kind of rare that you get to do a drama that has a lot of comedy in it too, mm-hmm. but it's still really emotionally grounded yeah. first and foremost. So when well, I feel like that's the, that's the Kadem's brand, right? Like that's the good stuff we get from him. Oh, for sure. Although this is definitely Annie, Annie's show. Mm-hmm. Like it is Annie's show, you know, and, mm-hmm. and very much has her voice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. Which has been wonderful. Like uh, she's phenomenal. And um, you know. I want to, I want to get into that in a second, but sort of, the other side of that coin, Megan, is, you know, you've just put this room together. Mm-hmm. You've just finished mm-hmm. your first week with this room yeah. on a show that you created. Um, let's talk first about putting the room together, being on the other side of what Ian's talking yeah, about. Which and is finding bizarre. the right people. Yeah. Um, it, it's such a, it's, it was such a puzzle. Uh, and honestly, I was saying to, to my husband the other night, I I think that my proudest professional accomplishment is putting this room together, Hmm. which is, which was a surprise to me of how personally um, (laughs) wonderful it feels when a room works. That's great. Um, I, had a very strong idea that because there's a lot of politics in it, that I want a very different voice is class backgrounds, ethnic bath backgrounds. I wanted middle Eastern writers because there's a middle Eastern contingent in it that, you know, I think sometimes we, we write from a certain Western side and don't see. Um, and then really what I wanted, which I thought we would also check all those bases with, was just really strong individual voices. Mm-hmm. And I sort of, um, I took that, I had a moment where I was like, is it going to be intimidating to have every writer that you consider is as good as you? And, and I had this like little sort of wimpy moment where I was like, is that a really good idea? And then I was like, you know what? It is a good fucking idea. And, and that became, and, and I don't mean that I'm, 
that I have ego around how good mm-hmm. I am because I think that if anyone's honest themselves as writer, you should constantly hate your shit two weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> and I do. I have shame constantly about my writing. Two weeks before. That's two weeks after. There's but one sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah after you have your third drink. Exactly. For about two hours, it's okay. And then you start fearing people's reactions. But I want to go back to this because I think this is a really important point that you make, especially for people who are putting staffs together Do, and doing for the first time. And, and I, and so I had this moment where I was like, how do you like, should I hire writers that are going to make me feel really smart or should I hire writers that are going to actually make me smarter by being different things that I can't be. Absolutely. And I'm so proud that I think I went the, the, not the way of fear and went and, mm-hmm. and like every single writer is exceptional and kind of a superstar that ended up in the room. And I have to say my assistants are superstars. Like bananas where our researcher has a film on HBO right now. Like it oh just, gosh, it just became amazing. this incredible. Um, and what was so fascinating is there was a moment in the room where I brought my researcher who'd worked with me on the, on the pilot who's actually an ex-spy himself, which is great and uh, (laughs) on as a, as a staff writer. And so I had somebody in there who knew the process, which is kind of nice. And I, there was a, there was a hole in what I was presenting to everybody, which was this one character I'd literally not thought about. And it sort of put her up and there's a very specific structure where every, every episode is a sort of two hander with Bree, the spy and somebody who might have betrayed her. So there's a kind of, um, structural trying to build real estate for really deep relationships. Mm-hmm. And, but like one was literally like, I don't know what's going to happen in this episode. And, and I had to be honest with it. And within 20 minutes, this incredible group of writers started riffing on her and I got really excited about her. Yeah. And it was so not about myself. Like it was about, wow, like you put a certain couple ideas out to this group of people and and it was such an affirmation of like going with that sort of courageous choice, which is go with people who are going to kind of intimidate you sometimes. Yeah. And have, yeah. were all of them um, first time writers? They'd been on shows before. Well, who Total mix. Mm-hmm. I ended up getting um, three co-EPs, one mid-level and then four low levels. So it's a, it's actually wow, quite a awesome. big room for, you know, uh, I and and that also was important to me because I was like I think we writers should try and build writer jobs out there and mm-hmm. and also selfishly I said I have a showrunner friend we were talking about staffing and she said you want to you want to win it you go big get really good brains in there and and it, and I took that you know it's a big room for an eight episode order and man it's great because mm-hmm. it's the right chemistry and also I I did very very deep due diligence I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So not only had I loved, like not just liked, but loved something they'd written, um, had a great meeting with them. I then got pretty deep with digging around on what they were like in a room. That's great. And were they supportive of people? Was there political bullshit that was going to come out? Should I be aware of things? And and I vetted, I literally vetted all of them. They're, they're good people. So you know? I want to talk about this for a second. Um, I was having a conversation with a um, sort of a low-level writer recently who had a really bad experience in her first room. And she's seen the person, the, the white man who she was hired the same time as her, right. uh, sort of rise through the ranks on this show that they were both on together from which she was let go. Um, And he was a nightmare Mm -hmm. uh, to everyone but the showrunner. 
And oh, yeah, the battle me, trick. Love right. that. Really nice to the showrunner. So it occurs to me in the worst staffing kind of a room, asshole. like, what is the due diligence that you have to do? You have do to you call, call people and ask them those questions. You mm-hmm. have to call and say, did was there competition? Did they? What were they like when it comes to competition? Were they supportive of other writers? But the other thing I wanted was I wanted to know people would have the courage to say no to me. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to be in that balance of could this person be tough with me if they thought I was going to waste some time in the room with an idea? Did they have the balls to say no, but it say it in a way that doesn't undermine me or any of their colleagues? I thought, um, I thought you were going to say that's why you hire a spy. But but there's no way to really test for that either, right? Like that that does not gonna come up. hundred percent that's true. But but I also I also talked on the first day and I think they respected it. I said, I'm pretty easy and and I've hired really well and I'm gonna pat myself on the back. You guys are all fucking awesome. But if there is shit that comes out and there's competition, I will root that out. I would rather have you sit the fuck out mm-hmm. than and pay you to sit out than to have you ruin the room. So it was a little bit like give them that that a sort of like hard ass, knowing full well that I think the vetting did mean something. Mm-hmm. I do, mm-hmm. I, and that was For something sure. that that I learned from Jonathan Lisko on on Animal Kingdom. I think he really, I, I, you know, that sort of landed in my brain. He really went around calling about people. And that was really important. I think about yeah. personality. I also think it's like, I mean, if we learned anything like working for Jason and, and the other showrunners we've worked for, it's like the culture is set at the top. And so yeah. I think if you, it, it's it, a lot of it is also, I think about hiring a number two that mm-hmm. like you can really trust who isn't going to, that everybody else can trust. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Who is going to kind of like that. I mean, I just remember like David Hudgens, Sarah Watson were essentially two and three. Mm-hmm. And then Sarah was number two on the last season of parenthood. And she was such a, um, she was just there. You know, if you had any problem mm-hmm. or anything, everybody was new on the, most of the people were new on the show. And, and I, I mean, everyone was thrilled to be in that room. So there was no bullshit, but um, you have to be able to kind of go upstairs and, and like the, the, per, the instance you're talking about, mm-hmm. I feel really bad for that writer because I feel like it's it was he or she I don't know but but that that writer wasn't able to at the very least talk to the number two or the number three right. and say I'm really struggling this bullshit is going on yeah because that's the kind of thing where a showrunner can only be aware to some degree Absolutely. when and as a showrunner yeah I would want to know if like I'm a writer is kind of behaving one way in front of me and another way in front of everybody else. That's hundred percent. Well, that is full on bullshit. Yeah. And I do think that we see that we all see it in any hierarchy where somebody performs to the above in a very different way than they, and, or like uses their power in ways. I mean, I think that that, I think there is vetting that can protect them from that a little bit, but I also think you have to watch. And I also think and this is like I'm a weekend. Watch me like be you know in a very different place <laughs> from now on. Like like I know anything yet. Uh, but one of the things that I really found was that trying to keep people vocal because if you've hired in the way you want to, if you didn't have to make compromises. Mm-hmm you know there's really interesting things going on. And so hmm. some of the people will be a little quieter. And so so I'll make sure to like point out when somebody who's a little quieter has has pitched something that 
you know, the, to make sure those really, really land. And it's amazing how you see then that people, people then feel more confident. Sure. All you, that can, stuff. you can orchestrate that yeah. a little bit. And um, I think I've been lucky in having that when I worked under people too. That's great. Yeah. And that was my other question, especially for you two. Um, you know, Dan, you've worked on a number of sort of big shows for multiple seasons or for even long orders. Um, I want to talk about finding your way in those rooms and making sure you were contributing, having a voice in those shows without, Absolutely. you know, getting in the way also. Well, I mean, it's certainly changed over time. Mm -hmm. When I was a baby writer on my very first show, um, I worked on Crossing Jordan and Tim Kring was the showrunner. And I had never been in a room before as yeah. a writer's assistant mm. or even a visitor to a writer's room. I had no clue what to do or what to say or when to say it. And um, so basically I said nothing. And mm -hmm. for a very long time, I was terrified. And Did anyone notice that you didn't say anything? Well, I felt like everybody noticed <laughs> sure. and was probably, you know, in the bathroom at lunch talking about how I didn't <laughs> talk. But um, uh, but nobody said anything. But nobody said anything. And that room was a massive room. There were 12 of us in there. So mm. really nobody noticed. Interesting. That, you know, and I think there were probably one or two other people who were as quiet as me. But I just um, so at the time it was fine that I wasn't saying anything and I was just absorbing. But of course, as time went on, um, I have let my cantankerous self come out more and more. <laughs> so now, as you know, whether I'm number two or EPing, um, I do not ever edit myself ever. ever. <laughs> so much to the detriment um, of, I'm sure for some people, but for um, but but let's talk about you know finding that. Um, and sort of those middle right. career so those, shows like that the you were middle, on. The middle shows, I have to say, were um, I had particularly Medium. I would say mm -hmm. it was probably uh, I spent the bulk of my career at Medium. And um, it was a revolving door. So I met, yeah. with a, I met a lot of writers going through that door and actually had a lot of uh, number twos. Renee Echevarria being one oh, of them. Oh, God. The and greatest. He was <laughs> he is the, the Greatest. Best, most nurturing yeah. person. And I think under him, I went from, excuse me, can I say yeah. one thing to, you know, having a more of a voice and because he was very uh, supportive. Yeah. He was the person like you're talking about, Megan, who would hear my squeaky reply that I barely could get out and be like, that's a good point, Diane. And, you know, well, let's talk about what she said or does this work? Did it like? And so he was very nurturing in that way. And that gave me um, yeah. more yeah. confidence in that setting. That's emboldening. Absolutely. Um, and he wasn't the only one. There were like a lot of really strong people, um, particularly my first season there, that helped bolster younger That's voices. Great. And that room was run by, um, or the show was run by Glenn Gordon Karen, who is a very big, powerful voice. <laughs> and as a tiny writer, a baby writer, um, it's a hard person to come up against because he's will take a very nascent idea of yours. And mm. if it can't walk and talk on its own within two seconds, you know, he's eviscerated it. But Renee was wow. somebody who was like, hold on now, Glenn. Like he would jump in there mm -hmm. and kind of like help you defend your idea. So And that's a um, like that's an important role. And this is sort of absolutely. what you were talking about too. Yeah. Like having that number two or even number three who can pump the brakes a little bit. <laughs> absolutely. And not in a way that shamed anybody no, in the room exactly. or, you know, made you feel patronized. I certainly didn't feel like I yeah. was, you know, being propped up 
yeah. you know, yeah. no. realized my weaknesses. He was actually, um, you know, finding the strengths in what I was saying. Right. In a legitimate me. way. Which in I think is the key. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because totally. we all know that feeling life. of like when somebody's trying to be nice, but it's actually like kind of having the reverse effect. <laughs> yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, Jason is that kind of a nurturing guy too. I mean, um, you know, I, I just remember that the, when we started on Parenthood that first day, because there was a lot of new writers, he he started basically by kind of giving about like a 45 minute kind of speech about like, here's how the show works. Here's my expectations. Here's how I run the room. Here's what, you know, here's, you know, like, and, and it was very clear stuff of, you know, um, it's a democracy. I want to hear all ideas, but, you know, don't keep pushing the same idea if I, I'm he's. He's one of those amazing showrunners. He just he makes choices, you know, and he's right. very good. He knows what he wants. And uh, I just remember going up to Gina Fattori at like the break and being like, this is so great. You get like a little speech. They tell you how it works. And she laughed. She's like, in 20 years, that's never happened. Just, you know, <laughs> this is not normal. This is not how it works. Uh, so, and I think it's interesting for, for Kristen and I, because, you know, we're like, uh, she's, she, she, she admittedly is more the introvert where I am obviously the extrovert. <laughs> um, that's why she's not here I today. She's like, uh, just tell her I'm an introvert and I enjoy seeing my family on the weekend. So, you know, I clearly don't care about my family <laughs> and I, can't, I love to talk about myself, but, um, <laughs> So that was like an interesting thing for us kind of coming up in rooms, kind of figure, because we were used to our own dynamic, which is right. I, I never shut up. And then you know, Kristen makes intelligent points. Uh, and but, you know, like so that was kind of an adjustment, I guess. But um, but it was such a kind of like when you're in a room where where there is such a like everyone's so happy to be there. It's yeah, very right. easy and free oh, and right. like. On the Parenthood show, especially, it's so interesting how every room is its own, just mm -hmm. unique, like ecosystem. Yeah, and 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 like that room was really lively. Like Julian Brownell would just get up in front of this, you know, five oh four, you know, and you know before, and, and everybody would take their turns pitching back. And then the Rise Room, which was a much bigger room. Oh, really? Well, it was. A little bigger because there were two teams, us and also Russ and Garrett, oh, right. Russell Friend and Garrett Lerner, who also wonderful if you get the chance. So how many yeah. people in total? It was probably a dozen in that room. Right, and that right. was because we had thought we were getting a full order and a full, yeah. you know, and then it was at once the room started, it was moved to a midseason and the order was cut, which was um, frustrating. Plus, it was a first season show, you know, Parenthood, it was like. It was yeah. a machine. By the time right. we're in season five, like we, that was the most, Sarah and I were just talking about this. That was the most efficient room <laughs> that we've ever been in. It was insane. We broke 22 episodes and like we were done. Yeah. We started at end of May and we were done by September. I think just I breaking started wow. doing this podcast around the time of yeah. season five and had a bunch of those writers on who were also happy. <laughs> like, oh my God. They were so well adjusted. That has never happened on any show. Even a creative <laughs> show, other show. I mean, like we just yeah. moved so fast in that room. It's so funny. Um, and, um, and then Rise was a different experience because there were more writers. So I was much more, and at that point we were uh, supervising level, mm -hmm. I think. So we were somewhere kind of mid moving up. Mm -hmm. um, we'd been away for a couple of years and doing other shows and stuff. So I was much more aware of the um, 
the lower level writers kind of dodging and weaving, trying to figure out how to kind of figure out the room because also, you know, the top of the chain was Jason and Carrie Aaron Mm -hmm. and Carrie Aaron's run a whole bunch of shows. So essentially Mm -hmm. like there was a whole conversation just between the two of them that took up a lot of oxygen and then everybody Mm -hmm. else and Lord knows I speak. And then, you know, but there was just a lot of people. And then, so like Kristen and I definitely were trying to be very like encouraging to, you know, some of the other writers that were, you know, that like, this is only Mm -hmm. their first or second or third show. And, you know, I feel like you have to do that, right? You have to basically like, it should be the responsibility. Yes. And I mean, I come from improv. So like the whole yes. Anding of, (laughs) you know, yeah, of yeah. a premise of, of a suggestion, a whatever pitch. it is. It's like yeah. somebody, somebody in the, in, in the almost family room was saying, I'm not going to say who was just saying that the thing about like Jason is like, you know, to have the experience where a showrunner doesn't like something, but but starts with like, this is great. But, <laughs> you know, Which also is like, legitimate. That is a new no. experience for me. This is great, but. But what's, right. what's so interesting about that, that I thought of this week and I was talking to one of the other co or one of the co-EPs about, which is some of the best pitches for trying to figure out what, what feels right for the show are those pitches Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. if you have immediate clarity like oh this is why that doesn't work then you've just become more sure of the alt and I think that's part of stress testing so it like shouldn't be a shameful thing at all Um, can I ask all of you a question or Mm -hmm. the two of you specifically because one thing I've been thinking about and I tried to do a little talk about it and I, I actually think it was important talk and I'm curious about your take on this and I and I I started it by telling a story about myself that made me look really bad. It was when I said something that was like really stupid in a room and I, and I borderline offended somebody. And then we had a really interesting talk about why, uh, why that was, why my perspective was so at odds with his. And we had a very good conversation about it, which ended in a kind of really interesting conversation about our different forms of sexuality. And we got through it and, and it was fine. Mm-hmm. But it could have gone a different way because he felt I'd said something offensive. And so I started that comp- – I started on the first day, the first room I'm running by telling that story and, and being specific about it. Like, this is what mm-hmm. I said. This is why it was stupid. And part of it was I thought it's a good thing to show a bit of egg on my face in a specific situation. But I was what I was trying to say is, you know, we exist in this r- – the kind of growth in terms of bringing – different perspectives in means that we're going to be fucking up a little bit. And we should be because we should be constantly rubbing up against new boundaries of what's no longer, you know, sort of the norm and what shouldn't be seen as the norm. Absolutely. But I think that with that comes this risk for us, which is that we get careful. And I think if we get careful, then our stories get, get, we don't get into the nooks and crannies of like, we don't be honest about things. And so, I said this thing to the room that I was like, I hope I, I, I needed to start by saying, here's a story in which I said something stupid. And the other person had the good faith in me that he knew it was an honest mistake and that we walked out of it. And so I said to the writers, I was like, I adore all of you because your work is amazing. And I got to know you have the good faith for me that if something is said that offends you, you shouldn't be offended either. Come tell me, let's talk about it right away. And 
And I and I felt a bit funny about it because you also don't want to say like people should be able to say offensive things. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I also don't want us to be too careful because we won't find the icky part of human experience together. Anyhow, I'm just hmm. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think you know I want us to all work in environments where we never hear anything that bothers us, and you know we're all just having a good time. But I think. A lot of the great stories come when you are uncomfortable and you explore yeah. why you're uncomfortable or you make a mistake and you explore why you make a mistake. And did I come at it from a place of malice or a place of ignorance or a place of entitlement or where did it come from yeah. is worth exploring. And um, I have been in those situations, too. And probably 97 percent of it has ended up on screen. So, like, <laughs> it's always good, good fodder and um, should never be should never have to end in, you know, HR or litigation. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a way to like channel it and then put it up on, on without, screen. Um, without going into detail, because we don't have to, but like how is that kind of stuff dealt with in the room at the time? And how does it, like I think you're, you're part of this is talking about we have to be honest as writers, right? Like we want to get to the good stuff, so you have to dig deep for that honesty. Um, sometimes that's ugly, but how does that conversation turn from the ugly part to the, the, interesting. the creative part? Right. I mean, it also uh, probably depends on where it started. So was the initial offense uh, something that was story related or, you mm-hmm. know, or personal. personally about the writer <laughs> yeah. related? Yeah. So yeah, if yeah, it's yeah. story related. Um, so probably one experience I can talk about that is um, – who cares? No, I'm not shaming anyone or naming names. But um, I worked on the originals. And uh, again, vampires in New Orleans, um, battling witches and werewolves. Okay. So uh, we have a couple of witches and werewolves and vampires on our show who are African-American. And um, we do flashbacks to um you know, the 1800s and the 1700s in the South, um, in New Orleans. And so we were always constantly telling stories of um, the slave days. Right. Right. And um, so long story short, we have a witch who was doing magic, who is African-American. And one of the concerns came up was, you know, are we, and we had to put this person in chains, Black man oh, in wow. chains, yeah. you know, and then he does like oh. magic to get out of it. So it's like, okay, is this a magical Negro? Are we showing men in chains? Like, you know, are we yeah, fulfilling so tropes? Loaded. You know, yeah. and you know, so I'm glad the questions were brought up, but you know, um, maybe they needed someone of my skin color to say, yes, there is a trope of the magical Negro, but we are on a magic show hmm. with. And this dude does magic. So. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about it. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. there may be ways that we can avoid being um, being too tropey. Right. Um, we don't have to which, be. Which is the yeah. way we were going to go if somebody hadn't spoken Absolutely. up and yeah. said, does he have to be in chains? You know, right. like, so, yeah. yeah so you can get to the humanity get, of it, exactly. which is the real stuff, which it, makes it deeper and better. Right. Absolutely. And so I don't, that's not a story of like a personal affront right. to somebody, but it was a, you know, this makes me feel uncomfortable. Should yeah. I say something? Let me say something. And you did and say something. Did, yeah. 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 Absolutely. yeah. And the conversation is helpful. Yeah, the, yeah. Very helpful. And I think what you're talking about, the, the trope, Tropy versus two tropy is so interesting because yeah. I think when we're telling stories, there's so many shorthand shorthands in our collective experience of things. 
when we discover what the tropes are together and it's funny, like, it's like, oh, of course that's a trope. And I think that, that right, the difference between like recognizable and relatable things and truthful things that are actually a kind of comment on tropes is a very fine line. And that's actually what you're saying is, is a brilliant example of why you need multiple perspectives in a room to be able to call that shit out. And it's not just about the point of diversity. It's, it's actually you need the different angles to get good, smart conversations because um, we will we all have these crazy blind spots that we don't know. We, we actually just don't know what they are. Absolutely. And there are levels of conversation, too, that we um, there's a way to deal with things in a very kind of basic. This is what racism is kind of a way. And then um, you've got other people in the room who say, you know what, actually, we can tell even a deeper story that's not just the um, look, I'm of a different race. And we can be friends. It's a a multifaceted issue, as every issue is. Absolutely. Um, I do want to talk for a second uh, along these lines about honesty in the room and on the page. Um, I remember talking to Carrie Aaron years Mm -hmm. ago about that parenthood room and how it was a emotionally raw place. Oh, oh, it, was, it, it was like a therapy session. I mean, I yeah. We, yeah, we know very much about all of our lives. <laughs> I mean, and and to I mean, I, first of all, I just want to say, I, Megan, I think what you did in that kind of the, this whole idea of kind of the, um, the culture being set at the top, kind of giving that example in that conversation, I think is really great. And I think it's it is, and this is honestly, this has been true of. I mean, I would say every room we've been in, we've been very, very lucky. We have not mm-hmm. been in room. There's mm-hmm. been very few assholes, if any. Um, and, you know, I mean, he, Jason puts those rooms together and Annie put this room together. It's like to celebrate our differences. Mm-hmm. And we are there to like, that's why we're there is because we're all, we all have unique experiences and we all are there because we're bringing something uh, who we are is to be celebrated and dived into and all of that. So, so hopefully that kind of, you know, vibe is going to keep people from, you know, judging people for that. Right. And that yeah, doesn't, yeah. and yeah. also hopefully everybody is humble enough to know I'm not hundred percent woke. You know I mean? <laughs> Speaking for myself, like I'm woke enough to know I'm not hundred percent woke, right. you know, like yeah. I still was raised in New Jersey in the eighties <laughs> watching revenge of the nerds. You know, like, I know I, that shit's deep in my DNA right. and I try to get it all out, but I'm not perfect, you know? And, and so when you get called on stuff, you have to hopefully be, um, not that I'm making it sound like I'm, some asshole who keeps getting called on stuff. But I mean, <laughs> I just think for anyone, when you do, you have to be, I think, humble enough to say, you know what? You're totally right. Shit. Sorry. Let's talk about that. Let's figure mm-hmm. it out. Um, and yeah, Jason made it very clear in the parenthood room in that interview for that show. That was like, we delve into personal stuff. And I was like, yeah, it's not, not a problem. <laughs> so it's really that's not there's so much oh i mean like that season the whole there's so many things where like i went to a foo fighters concert and they friggin took my weed and i was furious <laughs> and i was just like i'm a 45 year old man with two daughters i can't get high at a foo fighters concert fuck you and jason was like well that's going in that's, that's happening to crosby absolutely you know so i mean like you know like it was like from that to you know just uh, i mean telling stories about you know when you were a kid like it, and it was really wonderful like there's 
that show in particular, sure. you were able to kind of just tell a personal story and then Jason's like, that's great. Right. We'll use that. Or it's taking that and using it as a jumping off point. Yeah. I mean, like the whole thing in the final, final season of Zeke having the heart attack and that's basically the a version of Jason's dad yeah. and what happened right. with Jason's dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, that's kind of how, you know, and then we're all kind of following suit with our stuff. Right. So. And, and those shows and, and kind of all the shows that you two have worked on has lent itself to that kind of autobiography. Yes. I mean, the through line for us has always just been like, that's been the, uh, the greatest thing of the last however many years, six years, seven years on the, all these different shows is that our through line for us has just been emotion and characters yeah. and the emotional lot. And I know when we went and met with Renee on Carl Rowe, it was like fairies have feelings too. You know, I mean, that was a Kristen was like, Absolutely. fairies have feelings, we, you know, and, and, and that's really what it is. It's like, uh, you know, getting to kind of help create that, world was so cool but it was really still locking in with like well, where's this character at what's driving them and mm-hmm. you know that's you know really been what you know i don't know i'm trailing off i want to ask this of both of you as well like the shows you worked on haven't always lent themselves to personal stories in that way, um, but they have also, right? Uh, I feel like it's taken me 10 years to understand how to dig deep and tell an honest personal story, so I feel like the thing I'm doing now is the most personal thing, and it means the most to me, and I know it's the best work. How do you get to that when you're working on a show, a show that's not yours especially, uh, and and bring yourself to it, bring that aspect of whether it's emotional, you know, honesty or autobiography to it? Um, well, I've actually, even in the genre shows that I've worked in, I have been so thoroughly character-based, mm-hmm. meaning like medium. It was really about a mom and a, you know, with hectic job, three yeah. kids, a husband who was a, you know, I think he was a nuclear physicist or something. So it's like a nuclear (laughs) physicist married to a psychic, you know, we've got three kids and we've got to solve crimes. So it was always this, you know, personal, personal stories first. And then the genre element was tacked onto it. But, um, um, I don't know. Every show I've worked on has just been about a big, crazy family, whether it's a Mm -hmm. vampire family or an empire, it's a family of music moguls who, Love each other, hate each other, kill for each other, die for each other. And that's kind of the... Yeah. Were there specific stories that you were able to bring that you feel like only you could have brought? Um, I, You know what? I, I, It's hard to say because I have a big raucous family who I don't know if we've killed for each other but we've you know <laughs> like we've gone to the mat for each other um, my dad was one of 17 brothers and sisters like oh, they wow. were just like everywhere um, so he's um, was 10 natural kids 7 adopted mm-hmm. and um, that's wild he was from Sierra Leone West Africa we wow. immigrant family story mm-hmm. um, but uh, seven adopted kids that's amazing yeah yeah after the podcast I want to talk will. to you about that <laughs> I adopted yes. a son yeah yes um, well they 
this was in Africa. Yeah. They lived on a farm. So it was like, yeah, so it was basically, we need a new farmer. Let's go. <laughs> you know, we are make a kid or adopt one. But, um, so I come from a family where I've never been anywhere in this country or in this world where I've not had a cousin or an wow. uncle or an aunt. Like, How funny. Who's, so you know, floor I could sleep on or it's like, I need a hitman. <laughs> well, we've got a cousin who, you know, like, so, um, so you have plenty so of family I pull stories. from those yeah. kind of stories, and, you know, to tell stories about other yeah. big crazy families. Yeah. Um, but I don't know how you know unique it is, but it's um, you know my own personal stories that I can right. pull from. Absolutely, right. and, yeah. and that's unique. I mean, that that counts absolutely. Yeah. Um, Megan, I, what am I? I think it absolutely counts. There's actually this is who knows. It, how close it is to the original story. But the, in the first season of Animal Kingdom, I wrote episode five, and there was a really personal story that ended up in there and completely dressed up in a different way. But, um, and it wasn't, again, it wasn't a story that made me look good. <laughs> I, I, this I, seems I like to be your friend. <laughs> my friend. It's like, I transgressed and therefore tried to learn something <laughs> imperfectly and then fucked up again. That's sort of, but, um, but it was a story that was really kind of brutal in my in my sort of history, and I actually didn't remember it until we're sitting in the room one day. And so when it came time to think about my episode, I sort of wrote a version of a pitch of it, and and I think that because I told it in a very sort of thought out and sort of vulnerable way, the other writers were incredibly generous and were like, oh, yeah, let's use that. And 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 it ended up being – it does end up like with some brutal violence, which which is a little bit of hyperbole from mm-hmm. the, from the sure. original story. But it felt really personal, and I and the and the actor Sean Hattesey, who who sort of does the thing, the person who transgresses in the story, I think really keyed into something interesting. And I and we had a conversation about it being a personal story. So I I think oh, that you absolutely, if you have a story that fits and is personal, and you can put into a season, I think people fall. I think we all fall for that. I mean, I think it's in a good way. Like somebody brings something really interesting and personal as, as has been happening in the room that in my room this week, um, there's a, there's a, there's an emotionality that I think wins that pitch often. It's like, Oh, that's great. Like, let's find a way right. to, to take some truth in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think, and one of the things that I, I have a lot of respect for John Wells, who I worked under on, on animal kingdom is that I, I'm a real, really big believer that if you can not take the script into your computer and, and hard copy note people, uh, and keep them feeling ownership of it, that's a good thing. That's, that's something Wells does. Um, and, and so that's tied sort of into that personal, like, I think if you can get a writer to find something personal in in a draft and then keep them with that draft, Mm The the chance of the quality of the story being better is a little bit better than sort of something that really gets handed off. I think yeah. also when you're approaching, and for us, you know, like when you're when we're meeting with a showrunner on a new show or something like that, you know, we're trying to figure our way in. It's it's it's. I think it's somewhat limiting, actually, if you're just thinking, like, well, what personal experiences do I have? It's almost like the 50,000, like, what, what is this show about? What are mm-hmm. the emotional themes? What am I connecting with from a thematic standpoint? Yeah. And mm-hmm. the characters, you know? I mean, and 
and almost talk about it on that level and kind of go into it on that level. Right. Like, well, and that's a, that's personal too. Yeah, exactly. It's like what moved me? What yeah. moved me? And mm-hmm. then sometimes nothing moves you, so that's okay. I mean, you know, but but maybe that's the story. I <laughs> why mean, does nothing move? <laughs> well, but then, but that's why. Yeah, but it's like, what, yeah, exactly. You know, but you know, then, then I think what you have to, to find the theme. You got to find the way in that just uh, yeah. you yeah. know. That's true, yeah. and, it, and it means you know when you're you know out looking for a job. Yeah, that that's the job of looking for a job, right? You're going to have that meeting. You want to find your way into any of these scripts that you're getting to meet on. Absolutely. Can I tell a story about um, getting onto Empire? Mm-hmm. I um, have no hip hop rap experience with whatsoever. <laughs> I um, there are just so many things that I felt like I wouldn't connect to in the story, but I wanted the job because I was a fan of the show. And, um, and I had just come from a show, which was about a a crazy family. I'm like, I've got all sorts of things to bring to this. And despite the fact that there was also a laundry list of things I don't know, Mm -hmm. that's okay. Cause what I do know, um, apart from, you know, just being a fan, um, I felt like I could bring other experiences other than some of the more obvious ones, Mm -hmm. um, into that room. And I did, and I ended up loving it. So, how did you? How do you? I don't know if you can recall, but like having the conversation about what I bring to this room when you're trying to get the job. How did that conversation go? How were you able to frame that? Well, first I had to frame it to myself. Like I was like, "Do I have? I have. I can readily list all the cons of why I (laughs) would not be right for that room." But let me come up with some of the pros, you know, and it can't just be, I'm a super fan. And, you know, but that's the first one. I was, I was a fan. So, um, but when I got into the, my meeting for, for empire, um, I just led with, I love telling stories about big, messy families. And, um, I've come from one, I have been telling stories about them for my whole career and I would love to tell, you know, help tell stories about this one. Mm -hmm. And, um, that rooms, particularly at the top was just filled with a lot of really big personalities. And I found that I had, uh, you know, a thread of connection with each one of them and those threads were different. So, um, but you know, I don't know. I don't know what the end of this sentence is. But <laughs> <laughs> but you, at the end know, of the day, I got the job. You, yeah, you framed it in the way that made sense to sell yourself. and right. then, But it was also true. It wasn't just selling yourself. Yeah, like You exactly. wanted to tell stories for this family about families. Right. And when there was ever a pause in the conversation, I'd be like, oh, my God, I love Cookie. I just love her. <laughs> I would just you know, fall back on my fandom. Being a so. fan, that's awesome. <laughs> um, Megan, this show, both the spy show and the show that you sold three times. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> the heartbreak show. Uh, were these? Were you able to find the personal story in these pilots? Were these personal shows to you? Yes. Um, when the show that I had sold to Netflix did not go, I had been approached um, about this show that I'm doing now, and and I remember the first time 
was sort of annoyed that my agents had called me about it because I was like, oh, you don't believe my Netflix show is going? Like, why are you sure. fucking calling me about this other thing? Um, and then the Netflix show didn't go. And and that ended up being this incredible, like, wonderful thing because uh, my son was born. I, I adopted my son mm-hmm. right around that time. So I got to, to hang out with him. And very quickly after that, this show started becoming something that I was really excited about. Um the character's a spy, and she was based on a real woman. She was a young woman at the time. We're setting it contemporary, so she's like 26 years old. And the the first episode is about a relationship. It follows, it tracks the relationship between this asset who becomes very important to her. And it's another woman. It's a female friendship between the two of them. And even though the other woman is an arms dealer, neither of them change being on different sides, but they find this connection. This is, of course, very different than my experience. <laughs> I have never been an arms dealer. Not that you can and talk about. That, that I can, yeah, that <laughs> wouldn't say it. Um, but there was this little thing that happened, which when I was watching um, Captain Marvel, Bree's movie, uh, which is, I think, the first movie I went to after the baby was born, because that's the one thing that has changed for us. Uh, I, I had a memory, and this memory is of being with two boys when I was eight and the context is one of them is my best friend and the other one is 11 years old and the 11 years old is seducing the boy away from me by saying girls are not cool and, and stop playing with girls cause it's not cool. And we're, we're, we're playing with Lincoln log, those Lincoln logs oh, that yes. make those cabins. And I being like, like many little girls who feel that they have to do everything well, or they, their identity will completely collapse into a puddle of, you know, warm brown sugar or something, um, had done this perfect little cabin with, like, little construction paper turrets. And meanwhile, these guys are, like, doing nothing. Like, there's just, like, piles of shitty logs. <laughs> and I hear the older one say to my best friend, let's, on the, on the count of ten, smash your cabin. <gasps> and uh, and I had this choice. Life. And I was like, I knew in that moment I'd lost my best friend. But I thought, they can't fucking break this. I have to break it. So I pulled my little, like, tiny fist up and I smashed the shit out of the cabin. And I'll never forget the look on their faces. And I I got up and I didn't talk to my best friend for three years. And that's not because I stormed. Like, he literally, I had lost him. He was not going to play with me because I was a girl. And I recently actually saw this guy who's wonderful. He's a dear, dear friend of mine. He's like, this is the worst story. He's like, I can't believe you're putting this in this fucking script because I look so morally weak. And I'm like, well, you know what? We were so my friend. But I weirdly remembered that story while watching uh, Mm -hmm. Captain Marvel, told the story to Brie, told the story to the real spy. And they were both like, that's really interesting. That's an interesting, like, girls who smash cabin story. And then I was like, cool, whatever. And as I was writing, it becomes a crucial part of what the spy sees in the arms dealer. Mm-hmm. And it's this moment between them with that they're like, we will control our fate, our loss too. Like, we'll control the tragedies in our lives. That's um, so interesting. So, yes. And I think, honestly, that's what animates it into something very personal. Sure. So it's just this, like, random little story activated yeah. by, you know, Captain But you Marvel. found, yeah, you found the the heart of this. You found, found the humanity the in this. That's really that's interesting. That's a great story. Yeah. It's great. Uh, I can't wait for the show. Do you know when this, when it premieres? I think it's June 21. Okay. Great. Can't wait. Oh, Hopefully you'll have a title by then. We will <laughs> hopefully have a title. Uh, yes. Do you know when Blyhouse premieres? Um... I believe next October, so October 2020. Oh, that's too long. 
right? That's not great. It is. It is. <laughs> um, and I'm, we're like two, two weeks away, like yeah. October second. <gasps> so by the time people Yay. hear this, it will have. I'm going. Kristen and I will be working soon. <laughs> it's, we're in the, the absolute thick of it. It's I can't wait. Cra- it was, yeah. it was Where such a exactly good are script. you? Like, what script are you at right We're now? writing, we're doing 109 right now, but we're, okay. the room is, we're at right, right around breaking 111. And yeah, so, yeah, so we're getting near the end, but it's been, it's crazy. That's great. The network pace is, because yeah, we did a bunch <laughs> a of the streaming world. thing and we're coming back to that pace. And because even Rise, we kind of did get to write everything yeah. ahead of time because we got pushed. So the room had started, but then we got pushed. So we were able to kind of pre write everything. So this is just like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're hanging on to that horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I well, like people should check stuff. it out, uh, should watch all of these. Um, before we wrap up, or we will wrap up, as we always do, by asking you what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your family, your friends, your room, your loved ones? Ian, let's start with you. Um, well, the room everybody's talking about succession. Uh, this season yes. of succession is just bonkers. So, so delectable. <laughs> I, uh, the every Tom cousin Greg scene I can watch a hundred times. <laughs> I agree completely. Uh, so, so those actors those and it's, two, they're the so perfectly written. Yeah. That whole like it's the best comedy on TV. It's it is so. <laughs> Just great. I just love it. I also glow. This last season of Glow is tremendous. I loved it. And then obviously Fleabag season two. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. We are not worthy. We are not worthy. We all, everybody. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, so good. That's no, why we're no, so no, never be that Fleabag good. season two t-shirts. Right. Yeah, yeah, just, just, no, I'll never be that good. Right. Um, those ones are the, the yeah. Those, those are ones good are obviously the, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, I I'm watching Succession as well. I love it. I love it so much. I am um, a big Kindle fan. I don't know. It's something about someone being completely broken, but also being like a just a shark at his job at the same time. It feels like this season is love like it. they just like they they it just I mean like first season was great but this season it feels like it, they just it clicked in such a way like all right we know we know exactly yeah. what the show is absolutely and we're just fucking yeah. it's just so. Better Call Saul. I actually can't wait for that. Absolutely. Oh, can't wait for that show does not wait. It does that not get mad, the love it needs. It really doesn't. It doesn't. And that last plotting oh of God. where it goes to the, the end of the last season oh, is magical. It's, it's so good. good. Yeah. So get into it. Okay. You have four got, seasons to watch. Oh, good. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to plug for a show that all writers should watch because it's so fucking good is The Bureau. So The Bureau is a French spy thriller. It's going into maybe it's fifth or sixth season starring Matthew Katzevitz. Um, I say this with in- humility because I'm trying to write a, a spy show set in Paris right now, and this is an incredibly good one, so I probably shouldn't be plugging it. But it is so well plotted that writers should all watch it. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's incredible. incredible. Where can we find it? I believe it is on Amazon. Okay. And oh, it's, it's a beautiful. French show, so, yeah, they buy it. So um, I'm going to plug two French shows as well. Yeah. Oh, wait. Um, I watched uh, – it's called Call My Agent – I Which heard this is, is great. Wonderful. Yeah. It's delightful. And uh, the second French show is called I'm Big in France. What is that about? Uh, you heard that one? No. It's, no. Uh, it's like a half hour comedy, but it's like comedy drama. Um, and it's literally about an actor who is actor comedian who is big in France, but then he comes to Hollywood and can't what? quite 
be seen. Mm-hmm. Like he's Amazing. just he's like he's constantly trying to show people his like two minute stand up video and <laughs> where you know he's sold out stadiums yeah. in Paris, but you know here wow oh, that's nobody really gives two really cool. about him. And it's very funny, but also very heartwarming. So that excellent. And, and these are on streamers as well. Those we are can all find streaming. Right. And the last one I'll plug is um, I'm not really plugging. It's just what I'm watching. But yeah. I'm uh, it's called Top Boy. Which I've heard of also this. Is great. No. Yeah. It's season three of it has come out on Netflix, but season one and two were like, is it Netflix or Amazon? I don't know. But, I think um, it's Netflix. Netflix. So season one and two of it came out 10 years ago on the mm-hmm. BBC. And I, what's it about? I've heard of Top Boy. It's like The Wire, basically. It's literally um, rival gangs in a city in London, London. or I mean, the city in um, England. And, um, just how they fight and love <laughs> and it has hate that and rise and fall together. The wire, yes, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I heard that is great. And it's so well done. And it's not a wire derivative. It's right. Stands wow. to its own. That's so yeah. cool. One more plug. Yeah. Rami, I think, is very good. Oh, oh I haven't I watched it. It's yeah. very great. good. It's very I, I haven't finished the entire season, but it's incredibly well done, I think. These are all good answers. Right. I'm also uh, looking forward to watching separately from my daughter the new Big Math season, and then oh, I hear Big Math is brilliant. Discussing it afterwards, I, we can't watch can't it watch together. together. No, no, no. We can't watch it together, but I feel like you watch it, and then we'll talk. Right. And you're learning things, and that's fine. Right? But, yeah. Better you learn them from Nick Kroll than on the street. You know what? It, it's a great show. Uh, thank you all so much for being here. This was a lovely chat. I really appreciate it. Come talk to us again sometime. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. And mastered by Anna Rubinova. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Ew.